0: Welcome to Stories of Iceland. Usually my episodes stand alone, but I think it would be better to listen first to the last episode, because I left a few breadcrumbs that lead to this story. I also refer back to the episode a couple of times. We have good news and bad news here. Not from me personally, just from Iceland. We are close to being COVID-free, but of course, we don't know how long that will last. The Icelandic health authorities tried to do a deal with the vaccine manufacturer to test the efficiency on a whole country. Evidently, this became unfeasible because we have so few cases. So, we just had to wait a little longer, like most of Europe. Of course, poorer countries need to wait even longer. This is not just unfair, but but seems short-sighted, since this means the virus has more time to mutate and become immune to the vaccines we have today. For the last week or so, there have been numerous earthquakes here in the southwest of Iceland. The lower leg of the Icelandic sheep. This might mean a volcanic eruption, but it could mean nothing at all. None of these have been big enough to cause real damage, but it is rare to have so many quakes that are big enough for people to notice. Most quakes are so small that no one feels anything. If you want to help me focus more of my energy towards this podcast, please support me on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash storiesoficeland. I'd like to thank all of my supporters, especially Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, Robin Williams, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash Iceland. There is extra material there. But this is Stories of Iceland and this is episode 41, A Runaway Slave in Iceland. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavík. In the 1990s, when I was a teenager, a newspaper article caused quite a fuss. Its subject was the then Prime Minister of Iceland, David Oddsson. I've mentioned him Before, he is the man who created the economic system that led to the Icelandic crash of 2008. David was known for his curly hair, his big hair. When he was younger, it reminded people of an afro. This article claimed that it was no coincidence that his hair was this way. It was, in fact, inherited from a black ancestor who lived in Iceland in the early 1800s. The fact that this piece of information was used to mock the prime minister tells us something uncomfortable about Iceland in the 1990s. The anticlimactic result of this was that David was, in fact, not descended from this black man. What stayed with me and I guess many others, is that our view of Icelandic history had been changed. We had assumed that Icelanders had all been lily-white until the latter half of the 20th century. This is, of course, something Europeans tend to think about their history. I remember that when a black man was chosen for a part in the musical Les Miserables on Broadway, Many people thought that this was political correctness gone mad. But French history is more colourful than it appears to be. The easiest examples are the authors, father and son, Alexandre Dumas, and the grandfather, General uh, Thomas Alexandre Dumas, whose mother had been a black slave on the island we now know as Haiti. I was always on the lookout for more information on this black Icelander, But little came my way. An article here, a mention there. When the large genealogy database called the Book of Icelanders was first opened, I looked up many people to see if and how I was related to them. It turned out that I, like the big-haired prime minister was not descended from this black man. Before I go any further, I need to make a note on how I refer to people's ethnicity. I will not use the word mulatto. It is offensive and has always been offensive. The etymology of the word makes this clear. A few years ago, an anthropology professor named Gisli Pálsson, who I sat with in countless meetings when I was a student representative in the University of Iceland, wrote a book about this unlikely Icelander. So, if you want to know more about this story, check out his book, The Man Who Stole Himself. The story begins in the 18th century. At the time, Denmark not only ruled Iceland, Norway, Greenland, and the Faroe Islands, but also a group of islands in the Caribbean. They were called the Danish West Indies. These islands were much more lucrative than other parts of the Danish kingdom. The reason was twofold. Sugarcane and slavery. You might not think of Denmark when you think of slave-trading and slave-holding. It is not part of their heritage that they are proud of. But it is an important part of their history and, of course, many Danes got rich from this inhumane trade. My ancestors in Iceland will undoubtedly have consumed sugar produced by these Danish slaves. The islands Denmark ruled were called St. Jan, St. Thomas, and St. Croix, which was the largest of the three. On St. Croix, the largest towns were and are Christiansted and Frederiksted. I should note that Danish kings are usually called Christian and Frederik. Christiansted was the seat of government and had about a thousand inhabitants, most of them white and most of them male. On the whole, there were maybe 2,000 white people on the island and 20,000 slaves of African descent. Among these slaves was a woman born in about 1760 called Emilia Regina. Her name could be that of a free woman born in Denmark. But like most slaves, she had no family name. In the early 1780s, Emilia was a house slave to a woman named Henrietta Katrina, whose second husband, Heinrich Ludwig Ernst von Schimmelmann, was first vice governor and then governor of the Danish West Indies. The governor belonged to a wealthy and powerful German Danish family. His father Jakob has a footnote in the history of Icelandic literature for translating the prose Edda of Snorri Sturluson, to Latin. On the 12th of April, 1784, Emilia Regina gave birth to a son. He was given the name Hans-Jonathan, or Hans-Jonathan. The father was not named in the records, just a note that he was said to have been the secretary. What we can be sure of is that the father was white. There are many things that baffle us about chattel slavery. It is such a cruel institution. I don't think of things as being evil with a capital E, but slavery comes close. Outside of the practice of slavery itself is the fact that many white men impregnated black women and then allowed their own children to become slaves. It is unfathomable to me. And, just to be clear, that any idea of consent between a free man and an enslaved woman is absurd, even if the man himself is not the slaveholder. But who was Hannes Jonathan's father? There are quite a few theories. It might have been the governor himself. There are family legends that claim that a member of the powerful Möltke family was the father. If either is true, we should assume that the note about a secretary was an attempt to mislead anyone curious enough to dig through the records. But Professor Gisli Paulson makes a good case for a simpler explanation. According to him, the father was most likely a secretary to the governor named Hans Gramm. If he was the father, he gave his son nothing other than his first name and a paler skin color. The secretary moved quickly on to Boston, where he lived, had children, and then died. He is remembered as the composer of the music for The Death Song of an Indian Chief. As a child, Hans Jonathan was likely better treated than most slaves, since his mother worked in the household rather than the field. When he was about three years old, Emilia Regina gave birth to a baby girl named Anna Maria. Her father was a black man, but Governor Schimmelmann was listed as the godfather at her baptism. We know nothing of what became of Anna Maria. There are no records of her in later life. In 1788, Simmelmann resigned his post as governor and returned to Copenhagen. With him was his family and a few slaves, among them Emilia Regina. Hans Jonathan stayed in St. Croix for the time being. In the next few years, events began to unfold that would challenge the practice of slavery. Most important was the Haitian Revolution, or Revolutions, Which started in 1791. The French Revolution had been a catalyst for a re-evaluation of hierarchies and human rights. Abolitionists' voices became louder both in Europe and the Americas. Outside of Haiti, this was a gradual process. The powerful had grown rich from slavery and fought against abolition. The same year that the people of Haiti started fighting for freedom... Hans-Jonathan left St. Croix, traveling with his cousin, whose mother had gone with Emilia Regina to Denmark. He sailed by way of Florida to Copenhagen, where he arrived in 1792. We do not know what prompted this family reunion. It goes without saying that the mothers had likely been petitioning for their children. Copenhagen was then a city of about 100,000 inhabitants. It is tempting to imagine that Hans Jonathan might at some point have had an encounter with Jørgen Jørgensen, the future Dog Days king of Iceland. Jørgensen was about four years older and lived in the same part of the city. Jørgensen's father was a royal clockmaker, and the Simulman family had royal connections of their own. In fact, the Simulmans lived a stone's throw from the royal palace of Amelienborg. These boys could have met, looked each other in the eye, without knowing that both their lives would forever be connected to the faraway island of Iceland. The Simmelmans were not the only family who brought slaves from the Danish West Indies. There might have been somewhere between 50 and a 100 slaves in Copenhagen at the time. But these slaves existed in a sort of legal limbo. Slavery had never been expressly been allowed within the borders of Denmark itself. In 1792, the Danish government passed a law to ban the transatlantic slave trade, Surprisingly, this law was championed by one of the Schimmelmann family, who was then a minister. In December of 1793, Heinrich Ludwig Ernst von Schimmelmann died, and Henriette was left to take care of her family and household, including nine servants, of whom five were in fact slaves. She also had a son, Ernst Karl Heinrich Schimmelmann, who was four years older than Hans Jonathan. It is tempting to make assumptions about the relationship between the two boys. Were they friendly or locked in a strict hierarchy? The sources are silent. We know that Hans Jonathan seems to have a relatively good life in Copenhagen. He was taught reading, writing and arithmetic, and also learned to play the violin. He had a bit of freedom to explore the city. He was even confirmed in the Lutheran faith. In the debate on slavery that took place in Europe and the Americas, religion was always a major point. The fact that Africans were non-Christian was always an important justification for enslaving them. They were seen as heathens and thus subhuman. When they were converted to Christianity, it meant that slavery had brought them salvation. But of course it also raised the debate if it was moral to enslave these now Christian people. At the dawn of the 19th century, Europe was in turmoil. Napoleon had seized power in France, though he had yet to declare himself emperor. Denmark had formed the League of Armed Neutrality along with Sweden, Prussia and Russia. Britain was trying to enforce a blockade on France while the League used armed defense to ensure trade. In order to break the League, Britain mounted a naval attack on Copenhagen in April of 1801. This event is often called the First Battle of Copenhagen, to distinguish it from the bombardment of Copenhagen that took place in 1807. The Battle of 1801 might be best known because an anecdote about Lord Nelson. He is supposed to have ignored a call for retreat by putting a telescope to his blind eye. The Danish Navy had been preparing for an attack in March, a call had been made for able-bodied men to defend the city. So, seventeen-year-old Hans-Jonathan was fired up to help fight the British. The widow Schimmelman had objected to his plans and struck him several times with a cane. Hans-Jonathan left anyway. It might seem curious that this young man wanted to to defend the country that had enslaved him and his family, but it follows a trend we see with other marginalized people. They view military service as a way to prove their worth to their country. In the subsequent battle, Hans Jonathan did in fact impress his commanding officer and, likely for the first time, earned his own money. 15 Riksdaler. The battle was hard fought, but the Danes were outgunned. In the negotiation that followed, the British wanted to break up the League of Armed Neutrality. Denmark feared reprisals from Russia, but then news came of the Tsar's assassination, and they could safely bow to British demands. But for Hans Jonathan, the battle had just started. The widow Simmelman filed a complaint with the authorities, charging him not only with leaving her service, but also with a the theft of a large amount of money, though she later dropped that part of her suit. Hans Jonatan went to his commanding officer for help. This captain, Steen Andersson Bille, had royal connections and would in due time become an admiral and a member of the Privy Council. Captain Billy contacted Frederick, the crown prince regent, who wrote a letter saying that Hans Jonathan could not be considered a slave. With the letter in his possession, Hans Jonathan believed he was a free man and acted accordingly, but Henrietta Katrina pressed her claim. She also offered the Danish Navy the chance to buy Hans-Jonathan for 400 jigsdaler. Her offer was rejected, not on principle, but rather because it was too high. Hans-Jonathan had spent a half-year in relative freedom before the widow Simmelman was able to get the police to arrest him. Her plan was to send the young man back to St. Croix. The case of the widow Simmelman against her runaway slave is well known in Danish judicial history. Within a generation, the ruling had become infamous. It could be viewed as the Danish equivalent to the Dred Scott ruling by the United States Supreme Court. The central argument of the case was whether slavery was legal within Denmark. It was legal in the Danish West Indies, The attorney for Simmelman argued that a slave was just like any other possession that could be transferred by the owner from one part of the state to the other. Among the witnesses called were Hans Jonathans mother. There is a frustrating part of her testimony when her son's lawyer asks Emilia Regina who the boy's father was. Almost everyone who has encountered Hans-Jonathan's life has asked this question, and here was the only person who could give us the answer. But instead there was an objection, and the question left unanswered. The verdict did not come as a surprise. The widow was well-connected. Her last name was powerful. So the courts gave in to her demands. But Hans Jonatan was released and given a chance to appeal within 15 days. What happened next is the second greatest mystery of Hans Jonatan's life. We only know that Hans Jonatan turned up as an assistant to the merchant of Dupibor in the east of Iceland in 1802. The likeliest explanation is that some of his powerful friends in Copenhagen helped him secure this position. Hans Jonathan did not try to hide his identity. This begs the question whether some kind of deal was struck with the widow Simmelman, that she would not pursue him if he left Denmark. It is unlikely that we will ever know for sure. Maybe Hans Jonathan spent his days worrying that the widow would learn his location. The surprising thing about Hans Jonathan's arrival and life in Iceland is how little is written about him. You would think that this was big news. Maybe he would have caused more curiosity if he had appeared in Reykjavik. There he might have met the powerful Steffensen brothers, one of whom wrote that skin color was simply a matter of hygiene. The fact is that Hans Jonten simply worked hard and gained a reputation for honesty and kindness. If you visit Dupivor today, you can still see the house he worked in. He slowly came into property. He bought sheep and boats. When travelers came to the east, he often worked as a guide. When these foreigners later wrote about their experiences, Hans Jonathan was mentioned and thanked for his assistance. Hans Jónatan worked for Jón Stephenson, who was the representative for a larger merchant firm. He was a great load of books and even translated a few works himself. So, in addition to his training, Jón founded a lending library for the people nearby. When Jón died in 1819, Hans Jónatan took over the management of the business. In the same year, he started courting a 20-year-old woman by the name of Katrin Antonius' daughter. In 1820, the two of them were married. When, on the 26th of May 1821, Katrin gave birth to a son. He was given the name Ludwig Stefan and the last name Jonathan. Hans Jonathan sometimes used his second name in lieu of a family name and now he passed it on to his son. In 1823, Hans Jonathan left his job and he and Katrin took over the farm Borgargarður. On August 4, 1824, their daughter Hansina Regina was born. The first name Hansina is the feminine version of the name Hans and Regina is an obvious reference to the grandmother. The state seemed to be set for Hans Jonatan to spend his years as an Icelandic farmer, but it did not last. On December 18th, 1827, he suddenly collapsed while doing chores close to his farm. The cause of death was listed as being a stroke, a common but vague diagnosis. He was only 42 years old. The widow Katrin lived on, and both children reached adulthood. Today there are hundreds of people in Iceland and abroad descended from Hans Jonathan and Katrin. The question what became of Hans Jonathan's sister or the slaves that were brought to Denmark by the Simmelman couple is unanswered. The widow Simmelman died in 1816, but nothing is known what became of these members of her household, including Emilia Regina. The question most people ask today is how Hans Jonatan was treated in Iceland. His skin colour and hair made him unique. But there are no suggestions in the sources that he was subjected to racism or treated as other. People often draw a simple lesson from this. The unspoiled people of Eastern Iceland had not been taught to be racist, so they weren't. It is tempting to go along with this explanation, but I think it is a bit more complicated. We need to keep in mind that Hans Jonathan was raised in the very upper echelons of Danish society. His education, his manners, and his way of speaking surely marked him as a gentleman of sorts. He was also, by all accounts, charming man he could even play the violin the fact that he was accepted in icelandic society does not mean that icelanders were immune to racism at the time one form of racism is of course to label someone as one of the good ones the descendants of hans jonathan had to deal with racism their skin color and hair was often remarked upon there are even stories of old photos being destroyed to hide their darker-skinned ancestors. Today, most of them are proud of their lineage. They hold gatherings and keep in touch through Facebook. Hans-Jonathan violin has survived to this day. We sometimes think that racism must be learned, but I think it is unwise to ignore the tribalistic instinct that we humans have. We must acknowledge that we have a tendency to think in the terms of us and them. If we don't recognize how this affects our worldview, we cannot fight against it. That is it for today. Thanks to von Hellstere, Emily Cooper, Julie Fisher... Emily Harper, Evan Williams, Joan Helgason, Christopher Bath, Austin Yule, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Robin Williams, Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. I am Olig Solerson and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 41, A Runaway Slave in Iceland.